Thank you, Howard and worship team, for leading us in the songs of worship that focus in on salvation. Appreciate that. Preparing us nicely for what we're going to cover today. This morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts, and we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there to Acts chapter 10. But before we get started, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you because we understand that without this book, without this chapter in this book, we would have no hope of salvation whatsoever. That many of us here would not even have a chance to hear the gospel, would not even have a chance to receive the grace that you offer because we are not of your chosen people. And yet, you show us grace through your son, Jesus Christ. You show us grace by moving all of church history so that the entire church understands that the gospel goes out to all humanity. And so, Father, as we study this passage this morning, we pray that you would help us just to be able to see this, understand it, and just grow in us a great sense of thankfulness as we understand what you've done to get the gospel to go out, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles also. Thank you, Father, for uh, your word, and we pray that you would bring great glory and honor to yourself as we study. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Many of us, we despise history as a school subject because we find it dull and boring. And yet, at the same time, we all understand that history plays a role in helping us understand our place in time at this particular moment. As individuals, many of us, we would not be here in the United States were it not for the actions of our great-grandparents, our grandparents, parents, or perhaps even for some of you yourselves immigrating to this country. Perhaps for some of you, you have ancestors who've been here even longer. Now, regardless of who in your family made the first move to bring you here to America, there is a history behind you being here. You wouldn't be here without those actions. And the same can be said to be true of, of this church. San Francisco Bible Church would not exist here today if it were not for the actions of Pastor Sen Wong moving to the West Coast from Idaho attending Bible college and believing that he needed to reach the American-born Chinese. But if you look back at our church heritage, even further, all the way back to our roots, we find that we would not be here were it not for the chapter we're studying this morning, Acts chapter 10. And as we've been studying through the book of Acts, we have seen that the church was established here in order to be a witness to the world about the saving power of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. The forgiveness of sins was promised to the Jews in the Old Testament. And while there were hints and references to Gentiles being saved, they didn't have a full concept of Gentile salvation, only a concept of Gentiles being judged. Therefore, in order to demonstrate to the church that his plan did not or did include the salvation of Gentiles as Gentiles, not as Jewish converts. God had to shepherd the church to help them see that his salvation plan was for the Gentiles too. 
Acts chapter 9 sets the stage for salvation to go out to the Gentiles as God calls Saul to salvation and has Peter venture out into a heavily Greek-influenced part of Israel in order to confirm that God truly was saving people in those regions. But as we've already noted, God still needs to convince the church that Gentile missions was a part of his plan. And we will see how he shepherds the church to understand that and believe in that part of the mission this morning. And we'll do so by looking at two ways that God sovereignly intervenes to demonstrate that salvation must go to the Gentiles. Two ways God sovereignly intervenes in order to demonstrate that salvation must go to the Gentiles. The first way that God sovereignly intervenes to demonstrate that salvation must go to the Gentiles is in the provision of separate vision. The provision of separate visions. Verses 1 to 2. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Luke introduces us to a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. Caesarea is another port city in Israel. It's 31 miles north of Joppa. And it was an important town because the Roman prefect, the Roman governing representative, dwelled there. And as a result, Caesarea had a huge Roman presence there. Now, Cornelius, he was one of the centurions in the Roman legion. A centurion was in charge of 100 men within the legion. And the legion itself consisted of 6,000 men. And so, Cornelius, he led this cohort or battalion known as the Italian cohort. Now, centurions, they were not the daredevils of the legion, but they were steady men who led by example. They helped their soldiers have courage when the battle worsened and and their lives were on the line. And so Luke, he presents Cornelius to his readers as an upright man, a man worthy of respect, not just because of his rank within the legion, but also because of his faith. Now, Luke tells us that Cornelius was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, and he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So Cornelius is being set up to be a very righteous man, a man who loved God, who worshiped God, and he loved the Jewish people. And even though he was really, really close to becoming, uh, to, to converting to Judaism, he did not do that. He was a Gentile, and he got as close as he could to Judaism without actually converting to Judaism. And this type of Gentile believer was known as a God-fearer. He abandoned his pagan religion, and he worshipped Yahweh, going as far as to observe the law and to observe Jewish festivals. But God-fearers did not take the step to fully convert, to fully identify themselves with the Jews. And there's a lot of evidence that Cornelius' case was not unique. There were many Gentiles in the first century who did not convert to Judaism, but frequented synagogues and sought to live as much as they could in accordance to the Jewish law without actually becoming Jews. Now, perhaps some of you here this morning, you're wondering, Cornelius, why didn't you just convert to to Judaism if you loved God and the Jewish people so much? For those Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh, taking the extreme step to convert to Judaism was not necessary in order to be saved. If you read the Old Testament, there's not a great emphasis on Gentile conversion to Judaism because evangelism was not important to the Jews. You're either with us or you're not. If you wanted to worship 
Yahweh as a Gentile. You could join the Jews, but even if you were to convert over to Judaism, you were not allowed to worship with the Jews inside the temple. Now, the temple, as you probably remember, is made up of many different courts. You have the inner sanctum, which is the Holy of Holies, and then you back out, and then there's the uh, there's a room where the women are, and then you back out, and then there's um, th- there's the court of the Gentiles, and that's where the Gentiles were allowed to worship. And, um, and so that place outside of the inner parts of the temple, outside the building of the temple, that was dedicated for Gentile worship. And so basically, even if you were a Gentile and you did convert to Judaism, you were not allowed inside. You were still held at arm's length. It's like if we had people here who were unbelievers and we said, well, you can come to our church. You can try and listen if you want, but you have to do so outside the confines of this building. So you're on the sidewalk and you're just hoping that some sound leaks out from the windows. The court of the Gentiles was that arm's length distance place where the Gentiles were supposed were allowed to worship God. And by the way, this is why Jesus was so mad at the temple officials when he cleansed the temple. The court of the, the Gentiles was where the religious leaders set up the marketplace in the temple. It was, and remember, that's supposed to be the place where Gentiles worship God. But the religious leaders, by making the court of the Gentiles the place where goods and services were sold, were saying, we don't care, Gentiles, if you love Yahweh. We don't care if you want to worship him because you're Gentiles. You are second-class citizens, and your worship does not matter as much as ours. So returning to Cornelius, we have here a very, very good man, a God-fearing man, and God chooses to save him in order to demonstrate to Peter that salvation must go to a real Gentile. Now, Luke continues, and he writes in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he, that is Cornelius, clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. So the angel, he speaks to Cornelius around 3 p.m. and tells him that his prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now some of your translations will say that Cornelius' prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial offering before the Lord, and that's intentional. It's a callback to Leviticus 2.2. A memorial offering was offered up to give thanksgiving to God. It offered a it offered back a portion of grain to God in thanks, recognizing that he provided for everything. And this implies that a relationship exists between God and the one offering up the sacrifice. By saying that Cornelius' prayers and alms have ascended to God as a memorial offering, God recognizes that Cornelius has a relationship with him. However, we know that Cornelius doesn't have a saving relationship with God just yet because salvation is found in Christ alone. So God's saying, we have a relationship, Cornelius, but we need to finish the deal. We need to get you all the way over to salvation. And as a result, the angel angel tells Cornelius to send for Simon Peter, who is at Joppa. 
who was staying with us, Tanner, named Simon. There are so many details that we can pull out here, but I'm just going to limit us to just one. The fact that God provides Cornelius with an extremely accurate level of detail demonstrates how he was making it possible for Cornelius' men to find Peter. After Peter raises Tabitha from the dead and stays with the people at Joppa, everyone would have known who he was. They would have known that he was staying with Simon the Tanner. They would have known exactly where to find him. And so by setting up Peter's stay in Joppa, God makes it really easy for his servant, Peter, to be found. And so in obedience to... Sorry. In obedience to God's messenger, Cornelius sends two of his trusted servants and a devout soldier to go to Peter. Cornelius is taking no chances when it comes to the success of this mission. If God wants for him to send for Peter, if he needs Peter to go talk to him, then Peter must arrive. So he sends two faithful messengers and he sends a devout soldier to make sure that they get to go back to Cornelius. And so, verse 9 and 10. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the next day, day two from Cornelius's vision, uh, we see that Peter is by himself in Joppa, and he goes up to the housetop to pray. Now, normally, the prayer times for Jews would be 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. But God sovereignly has Peter go up to the rooftop to pray around noontime. And he also sovereignly makes Peter hungry at this time too. Now, we don't know why Peter is praying at this irregular time of prayer. But for whatever reason, Peter decides to pray at noon. And it's not like you know, he's disobeying God by praying at noontime. You can pray at any time. But the normal times for prayer was 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Now, when it comes to Peter being hungry, you'd think that noontime would probably be the normal time for someone to get hungry because that's when we normally eat. But ancient Jewish culture, when they ate their meals, it was they had a mid-morning meal and they had a late afternoon main meal. So Peter getting hungry at noontime is just a little odd. Um, why he was hungry at, at noontime, it's unclear. Like, he could have missed his morning meal. He could have missed his morning prayer time, and maybe that's why he's doing this at noontime. But regardless, God sovereignly uses this hunger, and Peter's knowing that he needs to pray to communicate to Peter what he wants him to understand. So as Peter is praying, he falls into a trance, and he sees, verse 11, the sky opening up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. <clears throat> this object, it's, like a, it's a great sheet, and the sheet would have been made out of linen. Right? That's the typical fabric that was used at that time. And this linen sheet is being lowered down from the sky by its four corners. And the fact that it's a linen sheet is, is important because linen was seen as a clean linen. It was one of the, the materials that the priests wore in order to demonstrate their, their cleanliness, their set-apartness from what they wore. And so inside this clean sheet, you have all sorts of animals. You have 
these four-footed animals, these crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Now, some of these animals were clean, but also, as we see later, some of these animals were unclean. So you have a clean sheet being lowered from the sky, and it has clean animals and unclean animals in it. So that's kind of curious. You're, trying to wonder, you're wondering, what is God trying to say here? What's he doing? Now, what we know here from this side of Acts is that this image is meant to bring our minds back to creation. It's meant to bring us back to the Garden of Eden when everything was good, when nothing was unclean. And that's why a voice comes out and tells Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Another word for kill, and some of your Bibles have a translation note for this, is sacrifice. So this could read, get up, Peter, sacrifice and eat. Now, why is this significant? Well, there was only one sacrifice prescribed in Leviticus where the one offering the sacrifice gets to eat the sacrifice along with the priests. It's the fellowship or peace offering in Leviticus 3. And this fellowship offering was given to signify that the one offering the sacrifice, the priests, and God, they're all one. They're all united in fellowship. So what God is telling Peter to do in this vision is to offer up a fellowship offering with unclean animals, animals that were identified in, Le in Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 20, 25 to 26, as unclean. Now, what made these animals unclean? Well, for some of these animals, they were dirty animals. And so the chief example being pigs. Right? Pigs are dirty, they wallow in the mud, and they like to eat garbage. And so they're seen as unclean animals by many, many people. And in those days, you were what you ate. Right? You, I mean, we kind of understand that, right? You are what you eat. And so the idea is, if you eat this animal that is unclean and, and you worship a god, and, and you worship gods, what you eat, what you do, what you wear, it tells people what you believe, what you worship. And so that means that the God that you worship would also be unclean. And so the people of God in the Old Testament, they were supposed to represent God in every single aspect of their lives. If you read some of those laws, you see how the people of Israel, they were supposed to be really distinct in everything. What they wore, how much material it was made of, and the particular materials it was made of, you know, how they dressed, who they associated with, even what they ate, everything that the Jews did was meant to show purity, wholeness, and holiness. All of that reflected who God was. And these laws, they were given in order to show that God was holy and distinct from the other gods in the ancient Near East. So God's people in the Old Testament were to show themselves holy and distinct through the great deal of attention they paid towards honoring God and following the law. Now, Peter, being a good Jewish boy, understood, understood this. And so that's why he protests in verse 14. And he says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And it says here in verse 15, again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This exchange happens three times, and it emphasizes to Peter that he needs to pay attention and understand what God is trying to tell him. These animals are no longer unclean. But there is a bigger point to this rather than just you can eat whatever you want now, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. 
Now, how can it be, though, that God decided all of a sudden to make these formerly unclean animals clean? Did God just change his mind randomly, or did something happen? The law is not just a bunch of subjective rules that God gave the Jews because he didn't want them to have any fun. He gave them those laws, those rules, in order to show them how a sinful people can have a relationship, can dwell with an absolutely holy God. So these laws and the sacrificial system, they were always supposed to point people to how they can have a relationship with God. They were never supposed to be the final way that people could be saved from their sins. And so their impermanence pointed to the need for a superior sacrifice that would make everyone right before God once for all so that those covered by that sacrifice could have a relationship with God. By fulfilling the entire law in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, Jesus showed that the law was no longer necessary. It no longer offered forgiveness of sins before God. The forgiveness that was once offered through the, fa- the sacrificial system of the law was invalid. Only faith in Jesus Christ can save now, can forgive sins now. And if this is the case, if you don't need to show yourself distinct through laws like food to tell people that Yahweh alone is God and salvation is found in Jesus, then people are only judged according to their relationship to Jesus rather than where they're from or whether or not they conform to Judaism's laws. And this, of course, is all working in the background, But this is what God is calling Peter to understand. If God has fulfilled the entire law through Christ and has cleansed everything through Christ, then the Jewish laws for cleanliness and uncleanliness are no longer in place. You can go and associate with Gentiles. In verse 17, Peter, it says here that he's greatly perplexed. He's still trying to figure out what he just saw, what it means, And so as he's trying to understand this, at that exact time, the group that Cornelius sent, that delegation that Cornelius sent, it arrives at Simon the Tanner's house. And as they're arriving, the Holy Spirit tells Peter that these three men are looking for him and that he is to go with them without misgivings, without doubt, for they have been sent by him. And so can you see how God is sovereignly preparing Peter's heart for this big change in his understanding of salvation. God is slowly and providentially pushing Peter forward and shows him what his plans are for salvation. Even with this statement from the Holy Spirit, God's telling Peter, Peter, these men who are looking for you, who are calling for you to go with them, to go go um, go with them to Cornelius, to Caesarea, these men, they are Gentiles. And you might be tempted to, to turn them away, to refuse them. But I sent them to find you. Don't turn them away because they are Gentiles, but go with them because I want you to go with them. And so Peter, he goes down to meet these men, and he says to them, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. For what reason have you come? And so they respond, by saying, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so when Peter hears that, when he hears that these men were divinely sent to him, 
by an angel, he begins to understand what God is doing. And so he obeys. He plans to go with these men back to Cornelius, but because it's too late to travel, he invites them in and he gives them lodging. And then, you know, the fact that Peter even gives them lodging demonstrates that he's beginning to understand what God has been telling him through the vision. Because of the hate-hate relationship between Jew and Gentiles, no Jewish person in their right mind would ever have given lodging to Gentiles, especially if one of them was a soldier. That prejudice would have led them to say, oh, thanks for visiting me, but you can go stay in the hotel. You don't get to come into my house. But Peter, he demonstrates here that he's beginning to understand that he cannot treat these guests differently. And it's not just because the Holy Spirit told him to go back with them to Cornelius without misgiving, but it's also because he's beginning to understand the idea of uncleanness is being redefined by God, is being wiped away. And so he invites these men into the house. He gives them a place to stay, and he gives them food to eat. He hosts them, and he fellowships with them. This is something that would have been totally unheard of back then. So God, he uses these two visions, the vision of Cornelius and the vision of Peter, at separate times in order to reveal his plan for salvation to go forth to the Gentiles. God chose the right God-fearing Gentile to get Peter's attention. Not only was Cornelius well-respected by everyone, but he was a man who loved God so much that he obeyed immediately once he received his vision. God also providentially arranges for Peter to have an irregular praying time and an irregular meal time in order to prepare him for the revelation that the old laws have been fulfilled in Christ and that the distinctions that were put in place to separate Jew and Gentile are no longer active. What was once unclean is now clean because God has cleansed it. So God did this all in order to prepare Peter to see later that he can have a relationship with Gentiles. The gospel does go forth outside of the Jews. And so these two visions, they're providentially placed to show Peter and the rest of the church that salvation is not just for the Jew only, but it is also for the Gentiles. And that leads us to our second way that God sovereignly intervenes to demonstrate that salvation must go to the Gentiles, which is the provision of understanding. The provision of understanding. Verse 23b. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. While God is moving Peter closer and closer to a full understanding of his salvation plan for all of mankind, Peter doesn't understand what God is doing just yet. But on the next day, the third day from the first vision, he gets up with that delegation sent from Cornelius, along with six Jewish believers from Joppa, and they go to Caesarea. The fact that there are six believers that go with him to Caesarea is not seen in Acts chapter 10. It's seen later in Acts chapter 11 as Peter summarizes this. And that's going to be important. It's going to be important, but we'll see why later. Now, verse 24 to 27. It says, on the following day, so this is day four, he entered into, into Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. So Cornelius 
All he, all he knows is that the man whom God told him to seek after is here. And so when he sees him there, he begins to worship Peter, believing that Peter was someone very special. And it's true, Peter is very special, but he's not special enough to be worshipped, which is why Peter raises Cornelius up and says, no, don't worship me, because I'm just a man. And so as he looks at the crowd, as he sees the crowd waiting for him at Cornelius' house, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Peter understands from the laws made by the Jewish religious leaders that it is unlawful, despicable even, for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. Because according to those laws, going into the dwelling places of a Gentile can make you unclean. Being in someone's house can make you unclean. Now, these aren't the laws in, found in the Old Testament, right? Nowhere in the Old Testament are you going to find something that says if you go into a Gentile's home, you become unclean. Now, this is these writings, that, these laws that tell us that if you go into a Gentile's home, you become unclean. They are found in the writings of the religious leaders, their interpretation of the Old Testament. That's where those laws are found. And these laws, they were saying... There were multiple laws, but they were essentially saying associating with a Gentile, eating with a Gentile, becoming in contact with a Gentile is enough to make you unclean. So avoid Gentiles at all costs. Do you see where some of this, this racial tension it comes from? It's not because Jews just thought, well, you know, you're a Gentile, so I don't want to hang out with you. It's, it was interpreted from the Old Testament. It was the religious leaders' interpretation of the Old Testament that drove this narrative of, no, you do not ever, ever, ever associate with Gentiles. That's why when Jesus was, was crucified, or when he was being judged, the Jews did, the religious leaders did not go into Pilate's home. Right? They didn't go into Pilate's home because they, it was their Jewish festival time, and so they were supposed to be kept clean. And if they went into Pilate's home, they would have made themselves unclean. So that's why they refused to go in. Right? But Peter, he understands from the vision that he's not supposed to call any man unholy or unclean. So that's why he doesn't make a fuss when Cornelius' delegation called for him and asked him to go with them back to Cornelius. But at the same time, Peter doesn't know why he's supposed to go to Cornelius. He just knows he's supposed to go. And so some of you, you're probably thinking, what are you doing, Peter? What do you mean you don't understand why you're here? Do what you would do anywhere else. Share the gospel. Come on. But remember, at this point in time, Peter doesn't even know if he's allowed to share the gospel with Gentiles. Right? There's no concept in the Old Testament of Gentile salvation. It's implied, but it's not explicitly stated. So Peter doesn't even know if he's allowed to share the gospel with them. But God, he shows Peter that he wants him to do that, with Cornelius' account. He shows Peter his objective in Cornelius' account. Verse 30. Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the tanner by the sea. 
So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. As Cornelius recounts all the details in his vision to Peter, it can be tempting to look at these verses and to think, well, I don't need to pay attention to these verses. All right? I can just skip over these verses because I've read them before. They don't offer me any new details. It's just repetition, so why bother read it? But look at the level of detail that Cornelius is recounting to Peter as he's explaining what he was told. Right? Four days ago, to this very hour, I received a vision from the Lord. God lines it up so that Peter goes to Cornelius at the very same time, four days ago, that Cornelius received this vision. And Cornelius, he saw in this vision, or uh, yeah, he saw in this vision an angel. An angel appeared to him and told him that all the things that he had done privately in worship to God was recognized by God and remembered by God. And because God had something to tell him, because God had more for him to understand, he told him, you need to seek Peter out. But look at this. When God tells Cornelius that he needs to go get Peter, he says, send to Joppa, invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. God tells Cornelius to seek out Peter, and he gives him not only his Jewish name, but his Greek name as well. As you can see, with the fact that, that Simon Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner. Simon is a rather common name, right? You have Simon's all over the place. So when he says, go to Joppa, find Simon Peter, right? You have both names, so you can't misidentify him whatsoever. He's staying with Simon, who is a Jew who is practicing an unclean job, a tanning job. He lives by the sea. Go find that guy, There's no chance of misidentification whatsoever. Because everyone in that city would already have known where he was. And by narrowing it down, by telling him, these are the little details that you need to be looking for to find my man, there was no way that they would have missed him. And so Peter, he's recognizing this. He's seeing all the details line up. And he's not saying, oh, what a nice coincidence. No, he's saying, oh, God's doing something here. I better pay attention. And so Luke writes, opening his mouth, Peter said... Now that phrase, opening his mouth, it's a Greek rhetorical expression that indicates that an important speech is about to follow. So after hearing Cornelius' account, Peter recognizes that God had sovereignly orchestrated everything to bring him to Cornelius. All of these little details were necessary to help Cornelius' men find Peter. And Peter was called to go. And Peter was told all these things that he had to go. He, was, he, he saw those vision, he, he saw that vision that made him convinced, okay, I need to go. He was told, you need to go. Don't, don't have any misgivings. Just go. And so even, even the timing of when they meet is helpful because it confirms that God is sovereignly behind everything. He's lining up every single detail to prove that this is where I want you to be. And so Peter, he says in response, verse 34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Peter's piecing everything together. His vision, what the Holy Spirit was telling him about the removal of the ideas of being clean and unclean. Cornelius' vision, how God brought everything together. He's putting all these pieces together. And the Holy Spirit helps Peter see 
that they interrelate, that they're not random sets of events, but they interrelate because God is sovereignly working. And so Peter says he now understands, right? Indicating that he didn't understand fully before. He now understands that God is not one to show partiality, but welcomes in every man from every nation who fears him and does what's right. This is not teaching that all men get saved, but all who fear God, all who recognize that God is the only one deserving of worship. And those who do what's right, those are the ones who are welcomed in by God. God is willing to save and adopt into his family all who believe in him, all who believe in his son. Right? So the gospel doesn't just go to the Jews only, but it also goes to the Gentiles. God allows for this word to go forth through the Jews. Look at verse 36. It says, The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word is sent to the sons of Israel, and it's a message of peace. And that message of peace is through Jesus Christ, who is identified, by, who is identified as the Lord of all. That is intentional wording by Peter. Right? The peace that is being preached to the Jews is a message that is being preached to others also because Jesus is Lord of all. He does not show partiality when it comes to who, whom he welcomes into his family. He doesn't show partiality towards those whom he saves. All who believe in Christ will be saved and adopted, whether they be Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, old, young, male, or female, all of them if they love God, if they obey God and do what's right, they will be saved. That we receive the gospel at all should make us thankful. But when you, when you consider the fact that we are actually doubly undeserving of God's grace, it should make you even more thankful that God has always intended to save Gentiles. Now, how is that so? How is that so? Why are we doubly undeserving of grace? Well, the first reason why we don't deserve grace is a given for many of us, right? We do not deserve God's grace because we are sinners. We've rebelled against God. We deserve God's justice instead. You know this, right? But consider this. Those of us who are here this morning who are not of Jewish descent, we don't have a right to salvation because God's salvation promises are for those who are Jewish, for those who are, uh, who are descendants of Abraham. The promise the promises in the covenants, they were never directly, they, they never directly covered us as Gentiles. They were always specifically for the Jews with an implication that it goes out to the Gentiles, but it never fully said that it goes to the Gentiles. So how does salvation get to us if, if salvation is supposed to be their benefit? How do the Jewish believers become convinced that the gospel has to go to the Gentiles? We're not better than them. We don't replace them. We don't deserve it any more than them. So how is it that we are here gathered together as brothers and sisters, one in Christ this morning? It is because God providentially moved history. He intervened into history to get the gospel to go beyond his covenant people and to include those who will believe. God didn't just send Jesus to die on the cross for sins. He sent Jesus in order to change history so that Jew and Gentile might be saved. Right? As he progressively reveals his sovereign plan, his saving plan, God shows that it has always been 
his intention for Gentiles to get saved. But it wasn't clear in the beginning. So that's why God intervenes and he shows it. He providentially pushes it forward and helps people see this is what I've always intended. And so as God reveals more of his salvation plan over the course of history, we see that God has always planned for this, for the gospel to go forth to the Jews first and then to the Gentile. And he orchestrates all of these events and gives Peter understanding so that when the church hears this message of salvation, they become the blessing to the rest of the nations that Israel was always supposed to do but didn't do. And so you see, brothers and sisters, God's grace is not just God being nice. God's grace is not just God being nice, but it is God personally, sovereignly, providentially intervening in human history to ensure that all of his promises come true. It is God sovereignly and providentially working to ensure that the gospel goes forth to everyone he has called to himself so they will respond to his grace by faith. We would not be here were it not for God's grace. So as Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles who are gathered before him, notice, you know, he doesn't cite the scriptures specifically. Why is that? He preaches to them, and he tells them all that Jesus did, how God anointed him with power through the Holy Spirit, and how he went about doing good. He was healing those who were oppressed by the devil. He was also put to death, hung on a cross, but raised up on the third day. And all of that was done according to the prophets. When Peter does that, he is appealing to Jesus' universal authority. He takes it to the big picture level. He zooms out from the scriptures and he shows from the big picture level that God truly does not show partiality and that that peace is available to all who believe in Christ. And it's not just a peace that is between God and man, but it's also a peace between man and man. We return back to mankind, not Jew-Gentile. We return back to that time so that everyone who believes, not just only Jews who believe, right, but everyone who believes in Christ receives forgiveness of sin. And as we see in verse 44, as Peter is speaking these words, while he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. As Peter's speaking, the Holy Spirit is given to these, uh, these Gentiles, and because Peter's there to witness God saving the Gentiles, there's no reason for the Holy Spirit to delay in giving them the Holy Spirit. Right? He just gives it to them right away. He's right there. Peter's right there. He can see it. He doesn't need to authenticate it. And so those Jewish believers who traveled with Peter, those six Jewish believers who traveled with Peter, they become really important because now they're witnesses of the fact that God himself saved these believers. Peter didn't go beyond his, his scope of authority. He didn't start laying hands on people and saying that they can, they're saved and they can have the Holy Spirit. God did it. God did it. God saved these people. Peter didn't just go out on a limb and do this. God did it while Peter was preaching. And so these Jewish believers, they become witnesses of that. The fact that Cornelius even has his family and friends there is also significant because if only Cornelius was saved, then the church could have said, 
Oh, no, no. The gospel doesn't go to Gentiles. That's just an exception, just like the Ethiopian eunuch. It's just an exception. We don't have to preach to the Gentiles. But the fact that the Holy Spirit falls and indwells all of Cornelius' friends and family who believe, that's significant. It shows that, no, this is not an exception. The gospel goes forth to the Gentiles, and he proves it by giving them the Holy Spirit. Peter, he recognizes that what is happening in that room at that moment as they are all filled with the Holy Spirit and they're speaking in tongues, actual languages, and exalting God, he's recognizing this is what happened to us back in Acts 2. This is what happened to us at Pentecost. What God has done back then, he is doing again right now. That means that the Gentiles, they are co-inheritors of the promise with us. They're co-inheritors with us. And so the church, we cannot exclude Gentiles. We have to bring them in. We have to have them identify with Christ, which is why he tells them you have to get baptized. They are now a part of God's family, and by extension, so are we. Because God intervenes into human history in order to extend his grace to both Jew and Gentile, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we must have a profound sense of thankfulness for God's grace. Without God's grace extended to us, we would all still be lost in our sins. Many of us here this morning are doubly undeserving of grace because we are Gentiles. So don't you see why it's nonsensical to treat sin like it's a small thing before God? That if it's, just our, if it's just our sin and no one's getting hurt from it, it doesn't matter. It's fine. God forgave me anyway. It's nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. Why would you have that mentality when you understand God's grace, right? Not only is it a big issue, not only are these small sins a big issue before Christ because we're one in him and it brings shame to his name when we sin because we say it's, his salvation is not enough, right? That his death and resurrection don't have a, enough power to overcome sin. It's also a huge issue when we decide to sin because we cheapen grace. We cheapen grace. We make it seem as if God has to give us grace. We make it seem as if we deserve it, that it is our right to have it. God doesn't have to give us anything except for what we deserve, what we've earned. And as we know from Romans 6.23, what we've earned is spiritual death for eternity. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. Right? That's all he owes us. But God extends to us his grace. Additionally, because God is truly sovereign, because he does intervene in order to accomplish his purposes, we ought to be extremely thankful for his great care and his provision. We ought to love him with everything that we have, with all that we are. You know, oftentimes we're, we're only grateful to God when he does something for us that benefits us or something that we wanted him to do for us in the first place, right? Praise God, I got into the grad school of my choice. Praise God, I got that dream job that I've always been aiming for. Praise God, I forgot that I left my car in a two-hour parking zone and I didn't get a ticket, you know? Or praise God, my body has been healed from all its ailments. Praise God, the trials that I've experienced are gone. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be thankful for, for those things, that we shouldn't thank God for these provisions that he gives us, because those are examples of his grace towards us. Those are some good gifts that God gives to us. But I am saying that our lives ought to be marked 
with thankfulness to our Lord for more than just these things that we want him to do for us. As if he were just a magical genie who does whatever we want. He is not that. He is God. He's Lord of all. So we ought to consider, how often do we pray to God just because we want to talk to him, not because we're trying to get something from him? How often do we pray to God in awe of who he is? How often do we give thanks to God for who he is, for what he's done, for his plan? And how often do we give thanks to God that he would even show us his grace to give us salvation? Sometimes I feel like we think we are owed that. How often are we thankful to God for that? We ought to love him with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, with all of our strength. We ought to love him with the very core of who we are, but we don't always do that. That thankfulness, that love that we have for him, it should show up first and foremost in the way that we live our lives, right? That thank, that how that thankfulness permeates every aspect of our lives. How that love for God influences every decision, every action, every attitude that we have. Right? That's how that love for God should work itself out in our lives. So I ask you, do you love him? Do you love him? Are you thankful to him? If not, and if, if not, and you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, consider why. Why don't you love God? Why are you not thankful to God like you should be? Right? Have you been taking him for granted? Have you not understood how deep love and thankfulness goes or knowing what it looks like? If, is that the reason why you're, you don't love God? If so, you can, you can change. You can repent of that and you can show that love to God. You can grow in that love for God now. Right? But it also could be an indicator that you've never been saved to begin with. That was what it was like in my own life. You know, when, you know, I, when, I, was, when I was saved or when I thought I was saved... I was merely professing faith in Christ because I was afraid of going to hell. I didn't want to go to hell. I'd much rather be in heaven with God. But when, and that was at the age of five. But from the age of five all the way up until going into high school, I didn't care about God. Church was just something that we did on Sunday mornings. And I didn't love God. I had no care for him. And the way that I realized that I was not truly saved was when I was confronted with the question of, do you love God? Do you love God? And I thought about it, and I was like, no, I don't. I could care less. If you've been thankful to the Lord and you do love him, great. That's so great. Praise God. Press on, though. Press on still more. Consider how you can be even better at loving God, at living your life to glorify God, and how, how you can take advantage of the time that you've been given in order to grow in your love for God, and in order to grow in your love for God's people, right? to see how you might use your time to spur other people on also. Right? We know that from the moment of birth, time's ticking. 
We don't live forever. And so how are you going to use the life that God's given you in order to bring glory to him? If you are here this morning and you know that you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, know that God shows no partiality, who desires for all those who are lost in their sins to repent, no matter what their ethnicity is, their social status, their history, no matter what, God offers that forgiveness to you. He's intervened. He has broken into human history in order to provide you with the forgiveness of sins through his son. That complete forgiveness is yours if you believe in Christ and turn away from your sins. He offers you that grace so that you might be saved. Again, God's grace is not God being nice. It is God turning the world upside down to offer out that hope of forgiveness of sin to you. He breaks everything away, moves it all aside just so he can offer that hope of salvation to you. That's what God's grace is. And that's what's available to you this morning. This morning, we've observed two ways that God sovereignly intervenes to demonstrate that salvation must go to the Gentiles. And he does that through the provision of separate visions and the provision of understanding. God has stopped at nothing in order to bring, bring forgiveness of sins to both Jew and Gentile. Going as far as to send his one and only son to die on the cross for us and then raising him up from the dead so that everyone who believes in him can be saved. And since our God is not a God of partiality, he made sure that the church understands that her witness is not just to the Jews who are scattered throughout the world, but to all who are in the world. And that means that gospel witness, the one that we have individually and corporately as a church, it goes out to all of humanity, whether you like certain individuals or whether you don't like certain individuals. No one is beyond God's saving grace. No one is beyond God's forgiveness. And so because the gospel breaks down the dividing walls between all of mankind, we can have hope that we are all one new humanity in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we're so grateful for this chapter, for the Acts 10, for how it demonstrates to us that you show no partiality, that the gospel goes forth to every single person in the world, that no one is beyond your saving reach, your saving power, regardless of where they're from, the color of their skin, what they've done. doesn't matter. All those things gone because you show no partiality. You freely, willingly offer out that grace to everyone who will believe. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand this. You would help us to understand how this applies to our understanding of, of church. We understand that we are here to be a witness. We understand that we're supposed to go out to people. We're supposed to preach them the gospel. And so help us, Lord, to build our foundation of ministry off of these principles rather than getting tripped up on structure, on church politics, or over our feeling that certain individuals don't even deserve to hear the gospel of grace. Lord, help us to understand that we are here 
for your glory and for your glory alone. And that we proclaim this gospel of grace that you have given us to everyone who's around us. Grow in us, Lord, this love, this passion for you and for your holiness. Help us to see how that influences every single aspect of our lives. And help us to live a life of witness that reflects these scriptural truths. We pray that, Lord, you would just grow us more and more in our love for you. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.